welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right. Today is November the 6th in 2023, and my guest is Magat Wade. Magat is an entrepreneur, author, and promoter for African entrepreneurship. Magat recently published a book called Heart of a Cheetah, How We Have Been Lied to About African Poverty and What That Means for Human Flourishing. The book and her work on promoting African entrepreneurship and how startup cities can unleash it will be subject of today's conversation. And I'm really excited and looking forward to this as Magat is a shining um, promoter of many of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast and how to unleash entrepreneurship and especially for Africa. So Magat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Glad, happy to be here. Magat, how did you become the person that you are now? <laughs> yeah, so I definitely, the way I would describe um, how I got to even be talking to you, Nicholas, about um, the stuff we're going to be talking about, it goes straight back into my very early days. You see, um, I was born in Senegal, so the west coast of Africa. And then um, right around age two, when I was done breastfeeding, my family decided that it was time for them to, my family made the decision, like I always say, that so many African parents before them have made and so many after them continue making, uh, which was to leave everything behind. They left their, their home, their family, their community, the village, the country, the continent, everything behind um, to go to Europe in search for a better life. So my parents were what you call economic migrants, basically. Right. And so um, um, they left me behind when I was done breastfeeding. But then eventually, a few years later, when it looked like their immigration um, journey has been successful and that they could provide me with a stable home on the other side, then it was time for me to uh, go and be with a family, you know, with my parents uh, in Europe. And back then they were in Germany. So there I was landing in Germany in the middle of the winter when I had no idea what cold weather was, let alone this uh, white snow. I was like, are you kidding me? But uh, no, so that's what happened. <laughs> and when I arrived in Germany, Nicholas, it was just like, wait, how come they have this and we don't? And in that situation, all little seven-year-old me was saying was, how come I have it here? Uh, you know, back home, me taking a shower, it's a 45-minute affair because my grandma had to boil the pot of water you know, first you had to get this uh, coal stove going with real coals, right? And then shove it in that thing, fan it off so it can get all, you know, like the coals could get red. Then she puts a pot of hot of water on it, waits for it to boil. And once it's boiling, then she takes it onto a bigger bucket, mixes cold water to it. And there, somebody in my family, a stronger person than her, drags it to the shower area. And there, finally, at last, some 45 minutes later, I can take my shower. We're here in Germany. Mom is like, it's time to sh take your shower, Magat. I'm like, um, no, I'm not getting butt naked in this cold. Uh, where is the bucket of water? And she's like, oh, come on, you silly. Just jump in the shower. And so I just get in the shower and turn the knobs around. The water's coming down. I dump a shower I want. And I was like, wait. It was just like, whoa. 
And then it was the same thing about everything. It was the paved roads everywhere compared to the sandy, you know, um, dusty roads we had back home because not, nothing is paved. It was these grocery stores that are looking so nice, piled up with all types of things. And, you know, AC in the in the summer and um, heat in the winter. Like, just, I think all I was saying was like, how come like it seems so easy in here and also so productive, right? Because 45 minutes before you can take your shower, are you kidding me? So in any case, that became the defining question of my life. And um, that question of how come they have this and we don't, I just had to know. You know how sometimes kids can be just so obsessed? Well, that was my obsession. And I was like, why? And so as I was growing up, I kept with the quest to that answer to that question, to the answer to that question. And um, eventually the question became, how come some countries like mine and so many in Africa are poor, while other nations like the US, Australia, New Zealand are rich? Why? How does this work exactly? And of course, along the way, I heard all types of people telling me all types of things as to why that was the case. And um, some people with a very straight face say, yeah, darling, it's the IQ fury. Blacks and browns are simply not as smart as white people. And of course, the result would be this. You're poor. We're rich. You know, just accept it. Okay. Um, others, well, malnutrition. Others, you don't have access to clean water. Others, you guys are just always fighting. And I'm thinking to myself, if any of this could be true, then why is it my, my parents, the same people, the minute they get to leave Senegal, all of a sudden they can self-actualize. Now I'm looking at this equation and seeing that the only variable here is the place they happen to be in or not. And now I'm thinking, it must be about the place. But what is it about this place? What is it? And eventually, you know, life kept on going. You know, now we left Germany after a couple of years. We moved to France. After In France, after business school, I decided that, visit, that France was going to be too small for my ambitions. I'm like, I need to get the hell out of here. Uh, back then, everybody was talking about the American dream, you know, that I got to learn about thanks to Hollywood movies, you know. And uh, yeah, I, and I moved to the United States. And then one quick story short is, you know, for me, what happened is when I came to the U.S., I was very fortunate to very quickly arrive in Silicon Valley in the late 90s, uh, early 20, early 2000s, you know, at the height of the dot-com era, um, starting to bust actually. But in any case, there I was at some point in my life, you know, working for, you know, helping companies like Google and Netflix before they became household name brands, uh, finding, you know, um, their finance, finance teams from all around the world as a headhunter in finance. And it was amazing because what I discovered during that time was really the magic of entrepreneurship, this magic of creating something out of nothing, literally. Two people meet, they have an idea, they scribble it in the, back, in the back of a napkin, and before you know it, voila, a company is born. But during that time, I also got to understand really and appreciate what I call the ecosystem of the entrepreneur. An entrepreneur doesn't happen in a vacuum. So there, what I was seeing was just the visible part of the ecosystem, which was, you know, the, the, the CPA firms that they work with, the lawyers they work with. The, the um, you know, the um, the investors that uh, invest in their companies, the other founders that they get to co-found with, the top employees that they get to hire. So all of this, yes, that's how it all comes together. So that was the part I discovered back then. But um, so there I was in Silicon Valley doing extremely well for myself, 
I never in a million years imagined, Nicholas, I would get to where I got to in terms of how much success I got. Um, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I already had bought a home in one of the most expensive zip codes in America. And the reason why I say that is because it matters for what comes next. Because this one day I was driving down Big Sur and just feeling so proud of myself for how far I've come and feeling so much great gratitude for everyone who has helped me along the way. And, you know, it was just a very happy, joyful moment. But right away, as it often happens to me when I'm in a, when I'm in a, fa in a emotional state like that, my mood turned just dark. All of a sudden it was just, everything was dark. Um, and what happened was something that I was very familiar with my whole life. I grew up with stories of, um, um, migrants, people like my parents, who then they were lucky because they emigrated under safe circumstances. But um, the story doesn't go the same way for many of them. Um, so someone like me, I grew up with stories of, uh, you know, people who put themselves, who packed themselves into little fishermen's boats, trying to make it to Europe in search of a job. Oftentimes the boat tips over somewhere in the, um, you know, oftentimes around the Mediterranean Sea. And so right now it's a, it's a graveyard for so many of us, right? For thousands and thousands and thousands of us. And I would argue some of our most entrepreneurial people, because we do know the type of people who make that journey. And um, when that's not what, when they say sea route is too dangerous or we need to do, find a new, new, another route, some of them go air route. And so this is how sometimes above England, all of a sudden a body drops from a plane because somebody thought it would be a good idea to hide in the landing gear of a plane. Or you open the cargo section of a plane once it arrives in Paris and there is a dead body frozen to death. They didn't know that when the boat, when the plane gets there, it gets super cold. And when they don't use the air route or sea route, they're like, let's go land route. And oftentimes what happens to those who take land route is they get stuck in Libya. And there in Libya, when you're stuck looking like me as a migrant, you sold on a slave market. It took for CNN to to do the investigation for the world to finally know and believe what we have been telling them forever. Because so many of us are parts of WhatsApp groups where we're on a regular basis are buying people's freedoms back, literally, so that they can go back home. And so on the slave market, I'm, my, my price is between $300 and $500, literally. And all of this, Nicholas, is happening because people wanted a better life, wanted just looking for a better life. And so um, that's been my story. And uh, that day when I was driving and I was so happy for myself and so grateful for everyone. Yeah, the mood all of a sudden turns because the minute I, f I have that joy, the next second I'm thinking about those I left back home. And so for, my, for pretty much my whole life, I was... Um, not able to reconcile the life of abundance that I was afforded to live in the U.S. and the life of scarcity that I left back home. But all the time when what would happen, I knew what to do to cope with it. I would just put it under the rug. It's not my problem. What can I, little Magathwaite, do on the surface of this earth about this big problem that was there before my birth and seems like it's going to be there well after I'm gone? Really, what can I do about this? There's nothing I can do. So I cannot, I should not let myself be miserable. This is not my fault. Yeah, I might be, I might have been born African, but just like, you know, somebody else was born something else. Why should I have to? So I would tell myself all of these things. 
consciously or not, just to push it away, not make it my problem so that I don't have to face it. But that day, you know what they say? Um, they say that uh, the mind has an, an infinite ability to pretty much make sense of pretty much anything, including of the worst. And that's how you've seen some of us, you know, during Nancy time or whatever, of our worst, darkest times as humanity, you see some of, and you're like, whoa, I had this in me. But uh, yeah, the mind has this infinite ability to do that, to justify pretty much anything, however horrendous it can be. But the body doesn't. And that day what happened, my body was just like, I don't care that you brain, my God's brain, you're, you're trying to justify any of this or coming up with all of these excuses, but me, I can't. And so literally, my body started jerking around. I, and I almost, you know, like flipped the car on back, like in the ocean down below. And I tell people, I shouldn't be around. I shouldn't be here talking to you today. That day, what happened when I was in that car, I was alone. It's a miracle that I'm here talking to you. So my body just reacted the way it did. And then I got out of the car and that, that was it. From that moment, I think for people who are into spirituality or, the, or into religion or spirituality, which I am, I'm a person of faith. That's it. That was it. I made my deal with God and I said, God, from here on, I just want that um, every breath that I take, I want it to go to the betterment of my country and beyond that of my continent and as a whole uh, for Africa and Africans. And I just, that's it. That's all I want to do. And I'm going to show up. I don't know what to do, but I'm showing up and please show me the way and please put me to use. And that was it. So I went back. I was, I went back and, um, and uh, from there on, I have to say, everything started to change. Um, a few months later, I took my husband of back then, Emmanuel, who was French, and I took him to Senegal to see where I came from, just to realize that the, this drink that I grew up with, which is a part of my national identity, it's called the Bissap. It's the hibiscus drink, and it's the juice of taranga. People in Senegal are no, us, the people of Senegal, are known for taranga. Taranga means hospitality, and this juice personifies it but people are like yeah girl where have you been you know if you're anybody or if you made it you drink coca-cola you're doing pepsi you're doing fanta that's what the cool people do that's what the wealthy people do that's what anybody who has a status does and i was furious because for me not only there was a part of my identity disappearing but also you had these women who are the ones who traditionally grow this hibiscus who were losing their livelihoods and now leaving the countryside to go to the city to find a job. And there, many of them become domestics in homes where they're treated like crap. You know, some of them, you know, are in the street begging. The cycle of poverty was just getting worse. Well, back in the village, people were buying their land for on the dirt cheap. And so that was my first, that's when something happened. I said, look, um, you can criticize until the cows come home. You can complain until the cows come home, but you also were raised with this concept of criticized by creating. See, I think at their best entrepreneurs are those who criticize by creating. And so, yeah, if I have a problem with this, I'm going to have to take it to my own hands. And my solution for that was to build a company, build a brand, because I believe brands have a powerful, you know, um, powerful influence on culture. And insofar as here, I wanted to reintroduce a part of my culture, a brand was going to be my ally. And building a brand, building a company, it means that, um, Insofar, I was also unhappy about the women being unemployed, then we're going to put them back to work. 
And at the height of that company, we had 9,000 women working for us. The UNDP um, did um, a case study on us as to how we put all of this together and all of that good stuff. But you know, Nicholas, when I started that company is when I started having the answer to my question, because I told you that question never left me, never left me. And all the nonsense I heard before didn't add up because I'm like, if, if everything you're saying is true, then how come the same people, they move and there's something different happens to them? Well, when I started that first company, I started to be just like slapped across the face with a really crazy world, big gap in terms of the ease of doing business. We were like that now back in 20, in 2003, right? This was 2003, 2004. We had a sister company in the U.S., a sister company in Senegal. And right now I'm building my third company. So all my companies have the same thing in common. One sister company here in the U.S. and another comp sister company back home in Africa. And I'm sitting here, I'm looking. Over here in America, it took me like back then 20 something minutes to set up a simple LLC. The same back home, first of all, LLC, there's nothing simple about that uh, for back home, because especially when you belong to a country uh, that belongs to civil law, you know, that follows the civil law. So you have basically um, LLC start to become very, the equivalency of LLC start to become really complicated, you know, SIL and all of that. Um, anyway, it took close to two years to get it set up legally. And the fees, I won't even get into it. But you can imagine in the U.S., you almost had no fees. Over there, by the time you pile them all up, it was in the thousands of dollars. In the U.S., I don't have to go see a CPA or, an, account or a, a, an attorney or anything like that for something like that. It's easy to set up. In Senegal, you have to hire um, what they call the notaries. And the notaries are nothing like what you might think of if you're in countries like the U.S., where right now notaries, notary signatures are worth not, almost three, five bucks maybe. But for anybody who I think you're in Honduras right now, you guys know what, what notary really means. These are almost like lawyers and their fees match lawyer fees also. And so they would have, I would have to go to people like that, um, spend tons of money uh, just to get their stay up because whatever. And um, so, and then the labor laws, the labor laws, the labor laws. And we, I'm sure we can go into all of that in detail. But bottom line, what, it, what I'm trying to say is I'm starting to realize, okay, over here, Almost no time to set up your business. Over here, we're talking about years. Over here, I don't need money to open a bank account, maybe 15, 20 bucks to open a bank account. Over here, you need thousands of dollars. Over here, you know, you are married to, when it comes to labor laws, the labor laws are so complicated. We're like, we have truckloads worth of labor laws, but so complicated um, that technically you're going to be making mistakes anyway, which means you have to hire a human resources person, so added cost in order to do it right. And even that person tells you that even them will probably make mistakes. And that in the end, they also tell you, it doesn't matter what you do anyway, because once you hire these people, good luck getting rid of them, no matter what happens. It's like, okay. Uh, the tax code is so complicated. I'm not even talking about the amount of taxes you have to pay, but even if, and you, you want to pay those taxes, the cumbersome process you have to go through to figure it out, there too, you're going to be making mistakes, which means you have to hire uh, experts like CPAs and such added cost, just to hear them say, the thing is so complicated, make no mistake, we will make mistakes, but making mistakes means I am at the mercy of my government's harassment and, or who knows, maybe going to jail. Not because I was trying to be malicious or facetious, but simply because we, you make an honest mistake and mistakes are easier to make the more you have laws and the more sense, you know what I mean? So in any case, 
I'm starting to look at all of this. And for me at first, I was not even looking at it the way I'm talking to you about it. All I could see was, gee, man, it is so hard to do business over here. I feel like I'm swimming through molasses every single day that God makes. And over there, really? Then I thought to myself, of course, it's because they're rich. Because in America, they're rich. That's why it's so easy to do business. And conversely, us, because we're poor, but it's so hard. Just to come to think about all of this again, because eventually I'm thinking, I thought when I'm connecting the dots, I'm like, okay, wait. You're poor because you have no money, at least not enough money to take care of your own basic needs. You have no money because you have, and why do you have no money? Because you have no source of income. What is the source of income for most of us? It's a job. Where do jobs come from? The private sector, businesses, enterprises. Okay. And what do they need? Um, like with anything you want to prosper, you want a thriving environment. You want a friendly environment. You want a conducive environment. When I got that, when I understood that, and then I went back to my own thinking, I'm like, wait, okay. If this poverty is solved by these jobs, which comes from these businesses, which themselves need this enabling environment, oh, I had it wrong. I had it wrong. Actually, it's because it's so hard to do business in my country that we end up poor. And conversely, it's because it's so easy to do business in America that they end up rich. That was it. That was it. And then this was just things that I had to figure out on my own, just, in, just simply through my own lived experience and comparing these notes and everything. And eventually when I stumbled upon that, I was like, okay, is this just an anecdote or is there something more to this? And eventually, yeah, there was more to that. And so you realize when you look at um, various economic, various economic um, indexes that measure how hard or easy it is to start and run a business anywhere in the world, like the Doing Business Index uh, ranking of a World Bank or the Fraser Economic Freedom um, Index, you know, of, I think, the Heritage Foundation. One after another, they all say through their research, what is it that I've been going through as an entrepreneur and observing between the two places? So you mean, wow. And there, Nicholas, there finally at last. I got it. I got my answer. Africa is the most, is the poorest region in the world because it happens to be the most over-regulated region in the world. And what that means is simply that it is harder to do business in anywhere, in anywhere, almost, in, almost anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa than it is anywhere in Scandinavia. What I am saying is African nations, let me say it the other way around. What I'm saying is Scandinavian nations are more capitalist than almost any sub-Saharan African nations. And that is the reason why we're poor. And so when people ask me, what is my story? How did I get to where I got to? That to me is, that's my story. And that's what the book goes in detail on. But, um, you know, walking you through a lot of more of those details but that's pretty much um, who I am and um, pretty much, you know, what I'm here for. So obviously, as you can imagine, once I discovered that, many of the steps led me to, you know, you and I being part of the same world. And I'm sure we'll be talking about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very powerful story. And also how I left Interject is also in, in, in similar insight, how really the legal base layer or institutions 
um, in a society, create the conditions for entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is really what we need to build all these solutions that make our lives easier and more abundant. Uh, and I want to talk a lot more about the problems that African entrepreneurs are facing and hear more practical stories. But this is this one question that popped up in my head that um, I'm curious about, which is, so you come from a family of immigrants. Yeah. What was your parents or commun your community's answer to the question um, of why um, you're poor there and you can be rich there? And what were kind of the mental models of how you looked at these other countries, right? What, how, how did, yeah. what was kind of the um, flow of information or the perception of these other countries versus your own country and where you're from? How does that look like? Yeah, actually, they're pretty similar in a way. So what I have found is um, uh, whether it was people in my family to this day, like, like I, I don't know if my parents, um, um, it's actually very funny because when you ask many people, and I, and I, and I think actually probably it was the answers that I got very early on from my parents, you know, from the first time I asked, and then I would uh, get the same answers again. But whether, so you have a big subset of people who think, just like I, my first reaction, my first reaction was just like, it's because we're poor, but everything is messed up, right? It's just, it, it, it would make sense. Like you would think that when you're poor, nothing works, you know, it's just, it just, it goes together. It's a future. Uh, not a bug, right? So I think for people like my parents and all, and many others, that's what they thought. And that's what so many of them still think. And um, then you had another subset who on top of that uh, would add also, would, would say that um, it's because of colonialism. Many Africans, I would, I would argue that, see, that's a funny thing, uh, Nicholas, because if you were to line up a hundred people, a hundred people, let's say on this side, you line up a hundred Africans, and on the other side, you, you line up a hundred non-Africans. They invariably find themselves into two big pots. Two. One is Africans and their allies in the non-African groups. So if you look at Africans, and you look at the non-African groups, um, but uh, their allies of the African inter and these are going to be usually people who are more like, um, you know, lefties, people like, you know, who traditionally have been the allies of, you know, Africans and, and the global poor. Although I would like to argue that they have abandoned us a long time ago when it became clear that the free markets was a solution for us and uh, that we no longer could be the useful idiots of uh, their of their, you know, flawed ideologies around various forms of statism. But in any case, um, if you look at the, Af if you look, listen to all the answers given to you by the Af but by most of the African, 99.9% .9 of them, and I would like to argue even 100% of them, and you look at the allies on the non, on the non, um, on the non-Africa side, you will hear the same usual suspects as to why we're poor. They will say colonialism. They will say racism. They will say um, they will say it's because they're stealing our natural resources. Everybody's stealing our natural resources. We're not making as much money as we're going to make it about our natural resources. And then you have other people who are flat out out to lunch, living in a conspiracy world where the white man, um, you know, wake up every morning thinking about how are they going to get to screw the African person and going back to bed and going to bed thinking about, you know, how they're going to mess with the African person and make sure Africans never rise because, you know, if they rise, it's going to be game over for everybody else as if the world was a zero-sum game. That's really not understanding how the world works. And I'm also here to tell them, 
I've got sad news for you guys. Shocking. At least Americans, everyday Americans, they don't think of you. They just don't. They've got other big fish to fry. They you don't even know where your country is. Where your country is? They don't even know who you are. So this idea that they wake up thinking about how they're going to mess with you and they go to bed thinking about how they're going to mess with you, you are really thinking too much of yourself, buddy. Okay? So in any case, um, those are the usual suspects you hear and also bad leaders. Bad leaders. And when they say bad leaders, or also they will say bad governance, you know, bad governance. But when they say bad governance, you know what I have come to understand is for the most part, they're thinking democracy, lack of governance as in bad governance as in lack of democracy. Because for the longest time, we've been sold this idea that democracy is what we need to build prosperity. And we have been distracted with however good the concept of democracy is I agree. I am definitely not promoting, you know, dictatorship or authoritarianism of any kind. Absolutely not. But I do have an issue with this uh, democracy winner takes all as we know, as we see it. I think that system has shown how flawed and how limited it is. I think all around the world, we're seeing the limits of this, right? And I argue that we need a better, a better system. And that is a conversation we can have another time around the concept of cryptarchy and things like that, that I would like to obviously update for 21st century living, um, making sure that minorities are better, have better protection. That's going to be the, the, the topic of my next book, right? I'm, I'm really, and there again, is going back to traditional um, African ways of uh, handling governance. But again, they'll say, and governance, but what they mean is not what you and I think of when we talk about governance, you know, like this whole concept of uh, beyond this rule of law, but also thinking about, you know, secure and, um, you know, transferable property right, all of that good stuff that you and I know to, 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 to you know, to, to just make things work. But then it's just like, if we, then it's just, we have people who have been in power for 40 years, for 30 years, that's what they mean by, you know, by bad governance. And of course, when they say bad governance, they're also thinking about the corruption, right? Um, people selling our natural resources on the cheap, um, just to benefit themselves, you know, I sell, you, Nicholas, come from this different country. I sell you our natural resources on the cheaper end for you. And you, we, you and I work together so I can take um, some, of the, some of it back in my pocket. And there you go. We made an nice deal. Thank you very much. I just sold, I just sold generations of my country, but who, what do I care? I just managed to be able to buy one more mansion in the south of France or one more private jet or maybe a couple fur coats because, you know, some of them are such... But yesteryears, but a fur coat is what they still, you know, love, not, not, not knowing that who, who buys still fur coats today. I'm trying to be cheeky here. But in any case, that's what I hear from those people, from the Africans and the allies, non-Africans, usually people on the, on the left who are just like, yeah, 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 you are victim up and down the street. Okay. And then from the others, uh, usually non-Africans. Then I hear the IQ fury, I hear the lazy fury, I hear the you guys are savages always fighting with each other, um, you are, you, you just um, can't be trusted with anything, um, as a matter of fact, aren't you the ones who were selling each other as slaves during the slave trade, and blah blah blah, so I hear all of this nonsense, I hear all of that, right, but you know what I don't hear from either sides, Nicholas, is what you and I just talked about, we're poor, because our entrepreneurs are not free to enterprise. What they all have in common is none of them has the right answer. And then you wonder why we're still poor. 
then you wonder why we're still poor. So those are the type of answers I've been getting, whether it was from my parents or from, you know, other family members or people in my community, other Africans. And that's still pretty much, those are still pretty much the categories as to why Africa is poor. It's funny because some of my most viral uh, tweets, Instagram, social media uh, content has to do with this simple question. When I just throw the question out there and I have a way to throw it where it's going to attract more Africans to, to chime in. And I have another way to put it where it's going to attract more non-Africans to chime in. And systematically, the two camps just come back and in each camp you have a usual, usual suspects in terms of the answer to why we are poor and still missing, blindly missing, is the connection to the entrepreneurs. No one talks about it. No one. And when you try to talk about them and to bring it up, when you even try to make these, these connections, you have people looking at you with like their eyes like, huh? Yeah, yeah, but, 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 you know, there's still, and you know, um, but... We're still working on this because all I need to find is one to 5% of the people who can still use their minds because we, you and I know that it's only, it only takes one to 5% of a population to change the world for good or for bad. And I like to tell everybody, especially when I hear all the fights on both sides, I'm like, look, or somebody's trying to argue back with me and has nothing thoughtful to say, eventually I end up saying, you know, at the end of the day, I'm only looking for my one to 5% and clearly, clearly you're not it. And, uh, it makes people a little bit upset, but I think um, I'm just, I just don't have the time to fight. So the book is not about, book is not about fighting one more argument, but it's about um, putting my stake in the ground, um, putting out there this new, this new proposition. And of course, with that, propose solutions and see who can really hear this and say, you know what? I've never thought about it before, but it makes so much sense. And I'm here for the journey. Let's go. That's all I'm doing. I'm calling for the cheetahs out there to... To, to come and gather so that we can go and uh, get this stuff done because we only need one to 5% of us. That's the beauty of this. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about the cheaters and about the one to 5% who are entrepreneurs and how to unleash them. And maybe mm -hmm. you can add some, um, some anecdotes or some, um, give some examples of what you had uh, seen in African entrepreneurship. Maybe yeah. by helping me make sense of a bit of a conundrum that I see when I'm thinking about How do we set up the institutions or change them or, um, you know, create our own in the way that it would unleash entrepreneurship, right? And that's yep. because there are, there's two ways to frame the problem, right? And, and they make a big difference. And in yep. reality, both are relevant, but it makes a very big difference in what we highlight. And that's A, the existence of formal institutions. Yes. So the existence of like property rights, rule of law, whatever. And the other is the absence of government overreach. Right. And these are very different sort of um, things to highlight. And that's actually quite important because I see it very often and um, help me to see, to make sense of this. In countries like Honduras, where I'm based, uh, we see um, a lot of government overreach, but it's also less state capacity. Right. So uh, in many areas, for example, healthcare in Mexico, they're harassing you less right? yeah. just because they don't have the capacity to enforce all these regulations yeah. that they would be yeah. creating. So, so yeah. how would you make sense of that conundrum and what ways um, are entrepreneurs experiencing that? Yes. So, um, again, I have a few more examples of that um, in, the, in the book, but um, let me give you two, two examples. Um, okay. 
So in Senegal right now, Nicholas, if uh, you and I, if I have a skincare company, literally I do. I have a, a manufacturing facility where we manufacture and a lab where we manufacture skincare products, all natural skincare products. And my, um, our market is the U.S. That's, you know, we, so we manufacture there and we retail in the U.S. My biggest customer in the U.S. is Whole Foods Market, very high-end prestigious, you know, grocery store, sold to Amazon recently for a few billion dollars, uh, but big account. They're one of our biggest accounts. And um, so I, I specialize on consumer brands, uh, African consumer brands that have embedded in the DNA the very best of my culture and uh, background. And I, everything I do, I do in a very conscious capitalist, you know, way, meaning that I very much follow the, the stakeholder model, not the way the, not the way the philosophers understand it, because that's a rather socialist way of understanding it, but the way that the true free marketeers understand it saying, A, it's up to every single person, in this case, every single um, business founder to decide what is the issue of the day, right? Nicholas may decide that, you know, this is what he thinks about the climate issue. And he also says, and I'm going to go do something about it. Magat can decide that the biggest um, issue of the day is for her, it's poverty in Africa. And so, but so each one of us, we decide what is the issue of the day. We don't have a mainstream dictating to us what the, main, what the issue of the day is. As you know, in the US, for example, right now, um, the mainstream would like to make it sound like the biggest issues of our day is around identity, it's around climate change. And all of that stuff. And anything else is not worth talking about. And if you're not going to talk about that or gender, then you're just not, you're just not on the right side of history. So that attitude, we completely reject, right? We're saying every person really comes as individuals over there and they decide and they're saying, this is my issue of it. This is my issue of the moment. And this is how I'm going to use the power of the markets to really tackle it, right? So we're, we're like, if you have an issue, for example, of um, like in the U.S., I take an example in the U.S. So many companies, you know, so many people, they've gone to jail. They've done something. We don't know how bad. We don't know how whatever. But the, but truth. But the point is, they went to jail. They served their time. They served their duty. Their, their dues to society. They paid it. Now they're back out. But when they go look for a job, many job applications, especially for big companies, still have this box where you have to check: Have you been in jail? And the minute you check it, many of them, even where it's illegal, will probably pass you on. They'll pass, they'll pass. Vertical selection in the trash. We say that's not right. So while some other people are saying they're going to try to go and lobby the government to take it out of, out of, um, you know, out of the, out of the law that companies can, can still have people check the box. In this case, it might happen to be a good thing, right? It might be something that actually would be a good thing, which I think it would be a good thing that all of a sudden it's gone. But this entrepreneur whose sole reason for starting their business is to find a way for people who were in jail to find a job once they get out of jail. And really, truly, we go for redemption because I believe in forgiveness and I believe in redemption, right? We all do whatever we might have done in the past. What matters is that you paid your dues to society and that you truly, truly repented. And now you're looking to do something better with your life. And when you are in that stage, we all need to welcome you and give you a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance, right? That's what life is all about. So in this case, this entrepreneur says, I'm starting, um, I'm starting a call center and I'm going to hire primarily 
you know, people from the, who were previously incarcerated and especially women, because we know women have an even harder time when they come out. But you know what this person says? He says, and you know what? When they come and file for an application, I'm going to, we're going to remove the box. We're not going to have to, this, that box is gone. Gone. And then you see, and also what they show is this company, Televera, I think it's called Televera, something in New Mexico. They are performing so well. It's not even a joke, Nicholas. So what we're trying to show is if entrepreneurs take matters into their own hands and use the power of the markets to really get to the other side, that's for us the path forward. And where the socialist, um, stakeholder, capitalist, capitalist people would say is, A, the, the, the issue of the day has to be coming from a higher up. And B, uh, the government then. So in this case, they would ask for the government to force the companies to do things a certain way. And so that's why I say, when I say stick on the capitalism, I'm making sure, I'm making sure to, the reason why I'm giving you this explanation, um, Nicholas, is because I am almost sure that some of people in your audience might be like, oh, there we go again. In ter it turns out she's a socialist. No, 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 no. The conscious capitalism I'm talking about is to the opposite of those guys. Those guys are the reason why we end up on the ESG side, where people like us say no ESG because no one, no top down should be telling us what the issue of the day is and how we go about it. We care about the environment. The way I'm going to show that I care about the environment is I'm making all natural things. I don't want uh, uh, chemicals entering my, uh, my, my lab. I don't want my people um, smelling bad fumes or anything like that. So anyway, so that's just what I wanted to say. Uh, with um, We do things in a conscious capitalist way. So here we are in Senegal. And I need to hire. So Nicholas and I, we, I'm looking for a lab technician. Nicholas happens to have great skills for it, turns out. Or, and, but the problem is he didn't go to school, he didn't go to school for it. He has this worthless PhD in, in uh, German, but I don't need for this. Um, but Nicholas has a worthless PhD in German. But I can see that he's got all the things I really could use. Um, he lives in the village. He's very motivated. He's got a very Cartesian mind. He's very meticulous. He's very, uh, he's very precise, all of that stuff. And the rest of it, I can teach to him. So, okay, Nicholas. Let's get in, let's do a, let's, let's work together. That, that's just the beginning of a long journey in Senegal. So we signed three, uh, we signed uh, uh, a contract in three uh, sets, three sets. You sign, I sign, we sign them all. Then from there, I have to get in a car and drive from where we are based in the countryside all the way to the nearest um, capital region. And in this case, we're like at least a good hour, hour and a half, sometimes way longer because you're on bad roads, um, whatever. So I leave first thing in the morning and because we, I have to take this to what we call inspection du travail, the labor inspection office, a government office. And you would say, my God, why don't you email this thing? Because they don't do emails. You, if you email them some. It's as if the mail was lost, literally. You'll wait and wait and wait. They don't do emails. These, most of these people don't even know how to use an email. That's how like yesteryear they are. It's like the type of hippos you're dealing with. Hippos versus cheetah. So, so it means I have to go. 
And in my case, we made a deliberate effort to set up shop in the countryside because I'm trying to contribute to stopping the rural exodus that's happening in all of these villages in Senegal. People are doing what my parents did, but within the country, they're leaving their countryside to go to the, to the, to the, to the cities, like I explained today uh, earlier with the women of the hibiscus. So me, I was like, the way to stop that is to create jobs where people are. And along with the jobs, you also create schools. So we also have a school, a Montessori, um, an entrepreneurial school, Montessori um, inspired by uh, four of the children of our workers. So we can provide them outstanding um, education, which they don't get to have in the public you know, schools necessarily. So, and because a job and a school are great anchors to build a community. So that's what we did. But it means that I'm far away from these other cap the capital city and the capital region, depending on what it is that I'm trying to get done. So leave early in the morning, take me an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two or three hours to get there. You arrive trying to be first person in there, but it's eight o'clock. Where's this person? Nowhere to be seen. Nine o'clock, nowhere to be seen. 10 o'clock, nowhere to be seen. 11, you finally dare to ask a question because you need to be careful. You ask too many questions and you piss them off. You might never get through anything. So finally, I'm like asking, okay, where's this person? Oh, well, he's at the bank running an errand. I know he's not running at the bank for the, for the, for the government office. Absolutely not. This is like he's running his own errands on the time that he's supposed to serve me, the citizen. But he's not there. And I better not show that I'm upset about it. Finally, he comes, barely looks at you, treats you like, whatever, who gives a shit? And then he's like, well, and then he looks at your, you know, the files that you brought and all the documents and everything. And he's like, well, where is uh, Nicholas' um, health certificate? I'm like, huh? What do you mean health certificate? I'm like, my CPA didn't tell me about this. Because remember, I had to hire a CPA. This, co this co company, we have less than 25 people. I had to hire a CPA, like, who serves also as, um, as a human resource, head of human resources. So we can be compliant on everything. And I'm like, my CPA didn't tell me that I need to bring this. Well, I'm sorry, but you do. And I'm like, really? Where is it? Where, where is it required this? And I'm like, and he just mumbles, barely responds to me. So I'm calling my CPA. I'm like, I need you to talk to this guy. And my CPA said, I'll, I'll talk to him. But anyway, so what we're finding is the guy, do you know what he tells him? He's like, well, because my CPA is like, most of my customers, and that's the other thing. He's not used to working with people like me who are in the middle of nowhere, my CPA. He's, most of the businesses are all packed up in that car. Do you know why they do that? Because all of these government offices that you have to deal with anyway, they're all in that car. Everything is in that car. It's just easier. You find more employees in that car. You find, so that's why 25% of the country lives into the smallest part of the country. So there, my CPA, so he hears, he's being told, well, because CPA is like, I've been doing this business for more than a decade and I've never had this request before. He's like, yeah, probably because you deal mostly with people in that car. But this is in the law. And here we have all the time in the world to apply every single piece of the law. So this is a piece of document we need. So you're going to have to have it. Otherwise, I'm not looking at this. And I still ask, I'm like, where is it? So my CPA had to find a piece of law for me. And when we looked at it, Nicholas, do you know where it was, from when it was dated? 
from the 60s. It was dated from um, before the 60s, before the independences. We got our independence in um, April 4th, 1960. These were colonial crap. But they never reconsidered it. It's just there, waiting to bite you in the ass whenever you're dealing with somebody who is going to be very zealous because he's maybe looking for a way to bribe you. Because that's what it is. Normally, if I did it the right way, if, I, if what he was maybe expecting is, I just spent all of his time coming here. I'm just not going to go back with no result. Okay, come on. And then you slip, you slip the, the bill somehow. And all of a sudden, okay, you don't have that. You don't have that, but it's okay still. So the bottom line is this person, but I didn't do it that way. I went back. And I told my employees, all of them, but I would need their health certificates. With that, I went back. And when I went, 80% of them, he, this person approved. This person has never run a business. Doesn't even know where we are running our business from. Um, doesn't understand our business or anything like that. But this person, Nicholas, gets to decide if you or I get to work together. You as my employee, me as your employer. This person decides for that. And as a matter of fact, for 80% of the, the files I brought that day, he regrettably said yes, but there was a 20% he's messing with me on. And one of those 20% is why, is because um, he said that, uh, yeah, so we have a night guard and every single job in Senegal belongs to a corpse, like um, a, corp a, a, um, a guild or I don't know what the right word is. And each one of these has their um, unions and the unions negotiate with the government every single year as to what the minimum salary is going to be for that category of, for that uh, field of work and also the different levels based on maybe your diploma, blah, blah, blah. So everything is already set in stone. And in this case, they say, oh, you uh, want to have a night guard? Well, we don't. This job doesn't exist in our conventions or something weird like that. And I'm like, wait, what? And then he said, and then when the job, because remember, they're trying to plan everything. But how can you, like, if you're sitting today and trying to plan jobs, surely even three years from now, new jobs are going to come, but you never thought about it because this is just how the markets work. And then what happens in a situation like that is that if a job came before these idiots have come up with, have thought it out, thought it out. What happens is they say the inspector gets to decide in which, um, in which um, salary category he's going to put you. And you know that they're, all of them are socialists, very anti-business. What they, for them, it's like, oh yeah, this way my, my opportunity to, I'm going to say that for this guy, you need to pay him X amount, which is a ridiculous amount. I'll say this, this makes no sense. It's three times what this job should be costing and I don't have a budget for that. So you know what I did? I went back and I told the night guard that I couldn't hire him. I had a job for him. He was happy with that job. He was happy with the salary, but the state said that salary doesn't work. And the only reason why I said it doesn't work is because that job did not, um, was not there in our, in our guild, in our work of guild. It doesn't exist. Maybe if you were working for a bank or something like that, if you were in that field, maybe it does. But in our field, it, did, it was not. Maybe they think, you know, who, what um, manufacturing companies, maybe I, 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 something like that. And then basically in this case, it meant I couldn't hire this guy. 
So this is a man who now has to sit home back to the unemployment line simply because his job has not been figured out by the state yet. And then you, Nicholas, because you have this worthless PhD in German, then the state tells me that I need to pay you something really extravagant as well, a multiplier, but I'm like, this makes no sense. I don't need this PhD. Well, but because he got a PhD, this is what his starting point is, and it's much higher than what you're, you're proposing to him. So then I come back to Nicholas and I say, Nicholas, I'm sorry, but I can't work with you. But if I don't have anybody like Nicholas, then, or whatever, I, but if not, I settle with you and then you cost me way more than you should. Uh, right now, um, you know, most of our employees are like, maybe they walk maybe for, some of them walk five, like the closest literally lives from his home. He can see the lab, the manufacturing. He crosses the road and he gets there. So he literally has no, nothing to, no, he has no commute. The furthest away, I think, walk for 15, 20 minutes commute. Is that a commute? Walking, 15, 20 minutes. You're walking on, on, you know, like almost like on roads where you don't have too many cars, whatever. But I have to pay a commute, um, a commute, uh, what do you call it? A commute um, uh, stipend. And I then argue to my, uh, to my CPA, why do I have to pay the commute stipend? This, this is not a commute. And he's like, my God. I promise you, it's better to pay it than to let this employee, because they could technically go after you, just pay it. So I'm paying a commute for all my employees. Um, so that's on just, uh, you know, trying for you and I to get hired. And to this day, it's been more than a year. I'm still going back and forth about one of the employees that I still would like to get, but we're, we're, we're elbowing each other because with, uh, with, uh, inspector, because what he wants to put me through, I refuse. But again, all of these interactions, oftentimes, a bribe will solve it in no time. But I refuse to go for that. So we're going to have to do it a normal route. Because the problem, the, the other issue with bribes, beyond the fact that it's morally not right, is because the minute you accept a bribe from these people, the minute they do something that they, they tell you, oh, you can bypass the law, whatever, you know, the day you say something, you become especially big. And you say things that the government doesn't want you to say, or you're doing things that the government doesn't want you to do. That's when they show up at your door, the audit, the tax people, and they tell you all the ways in which you have not been compliant over the years and how it's going to cost you an arm and a leg to rectify it, or they're going to shut your business down. And that's also why you do not want to be involved with bribes. But unfortunately, many people do that in Africa. That's their way out. And then, and then when I speak about these issues, they're the first ones to be like, uh, you're too complicated. What is it your problem? Just pay the bribe and move on. We all do this. We all have to do this. But I'm like, but as long as this continues, we're never going to get where we need to be. There's a reason why so many people don't want to bother with this. So that's all the labor laws. And by the way, if I hire you, if I hire you and we sign that contract, Nicholas, the first thing I need to start doing is to build a file on you. Why? Because the day I need to fire you, whether it's because overnight I lost 50% of our business because COVID or whatever, or you're stealing from me, or you're lying, or you're not doing your job, it doesn't matter. If I want to get rid of you, it's going to be a whole nother process. And I've been arguing about this with uh, the labor, with um, you know, the, some of the labor officers. And, they say, and I say, why am I married to my employees? Why do I have no freedom to, you know, to move around on this stuff? And he said, well, of course you can fire people, of course. It's just going to cost you a lot of money and take a lot of time. 
So that's on the labors. And I'm not even going into a lot of the other details around, um, basically my country in Senegal, Senegalese employees are the most protected employees on paper. And what does it, how does it show in reality? We're one of the 25 poorest regions in the world. Because if I can't fire you, I cannot hire you. That's what I'm trying to explain to people. It is very simple, isn't it? So, um, so that's on labor. Then um, trying to, then um, when I started the business, we had to, you know, when you start a business, you have to, in this case, because you don't have um, excess capacity of the manufacturing, like it is in many Western nations, you know, where you can rent a, a, um, a kitchen if you're into the food business, you can rent a place, you know, manufacturing where everything, you have a stainless steel tables everywhere, you have a commercial refrigerator or refrigerators. You have a whole nine yard, uh, the chain of cold is well, you know, well together and everything works. You can just um, rent such a place and you pay on a monthly basis and you, voila, you come in and you, all you have to do is to bring your employees, your recipes, and you're in business. Done. With us, it's not like that. You have to, most of the time, build the place, a specific place for yourself and basically just build from, so before you can even get started, you have to put so much money, so much capital that's going to be stuck in walls, in cement, in all of that building stuff. Then, um, but then you have to equip it with all the stainless steel tables. You have to have, um, like I said, the commercial refrigerators because you can't have normal refrigerators. Same thing with your ACs, all of that stuff. And everything needs to be designed in a certain way. And um, a lot of this material is simply not available for the grade that you need it on the ground. And the reason why is because there's not enough business for those companies to even bother, you know, having representation in places like that. So everything you need, it has to come from outside. So there we are. So, but if a problem is, if you bring this equipment at port, it quickly will become almost twice the price of the item. You bring in a car, same thing, the taxes on a car in Senegal, it's double the price of the car. All of this nonsense. So you need to bring a truck, all of that stuff. So what it means is you better go to what they call the APIX, Agence de Promotion des Investissements. So this is the promotions investment office where you go and you get into a convention with the state. So there, what you're going to do is you're going to fill out a piece of, you're going you're gonna to fill out a whole file, explain who you are, what you're doing, Blah, 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 blah. Uh, go to your, uh, to your uh, what do you call it? Uh, bring all of your uh, paper, papers of um, showing that you have, leg you're legitimate, that you have registered your business legally. Bring all of this stuff and then um, give them a list of all the material and equipment you're going to need to bring in. And you better be very precise about what it is. If you tell them the table is going to be a five meter long table, you better not bring a six meter table. If you tell them the table's going to cost $1,200, you better not have it come and be at $1,250. So you have to sit there and pretty much plan for everything. Because, and be very careful because anything you forgot, you might have to go back and do it again, which takes a lot of time. Or you just have to suck it up and pay the taxes when it comes to, 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 to the port. Or do about it and maybe compromise your, pro your end product. So we had to do all of this. Just so that what? Just so that they can uphold the VAT they would take on it. They're not forgiving it. They're just upholding it for three years. Because they're like, oh, we understand. You're going to, you know, when the business starts, they need some help. So we're not going to make you pay the VAT for now. 
we're going to uphold it for three years. Because in, we think that within three years, it should be fine. And so in three years, we'll come back and that's when you pay it. Because then you would not make money, right? So there, what happens is I do all of that stuff. And in my case, so that's just for material and equipment. But then I'm like, what about the employee? What about, um, um, sorry. Yeah, so that was for the equipment. And that was for the, for, the, for the people that you hire, right? They're saying some of these uh, taxes, we're going to uphold them for three years. And then after three years, you can come back and we can extend two more years. But then after that, that's it. But then I'm like, but what about the raw material? And what about the packaging and things like that? Well, sorry, we don't deal with that. Okay, who do I deal with for this? Uh, we think you should go to uh, the customs. We think. So here I am going one thing after another, trying to figure it out. So I go to the customs because I am lucky to have some connections. I go, we end up at the head of the customs. And then there he says, okay, my God. He's like, well, because I'm like, okay, I'm going to need to bring X amount of packaging. I'm going to need to bring X amount of, um, you know, all the ingredients that uh, I can't find in the country at, the, at the, the quality standard that I need and also the rice price that I need. And so in this case, we're talking about some coconut oil. We're talking about um, some candela wax because the formulation calls for very specific ingredients, right? So all of these ingredients that I can't find and all the packaging that I can't find, I'm going to have to bring it. And they have to come in volumes. And so, and then the problem is if I don't get some type of exoneration for five of my inputs coming from outside, I would have to pay a 45% tariff. And for two more of them, I would have to pay for an almost 70% tariff. I can't, I can't be, you know, like competitive with those types of, those types of um, you know, cost. So I've got to figure something out. So there we go to the, um, to the customs office and he's telling me that basically I'm screwed. I'm like, well, but I can't be because I've got to do something. And then there in his office for hours, we look through binder after binder after binder of regulations and laws. And there we find the one thing that we think I may play with, but it's still not, I'm still not in that situation because they said, if you have been in business for at least two years, I'm like, come on, I'm just getting started. How come I have been in business for two years? Well, then sorry, there's nothing else we can do. I'm like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, let's continue reading. I explained all of this in the book. They're saying that basically there is a special provision after you've been in business for two years, manufacturing, there's a special provision. You have to file with the state, with them, the, 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 the customs, because that's who is going to, you know, when it, when it comes, that's who is going to have to sign it. You, you have to basically, um, you get to bring products in for, that you're going to incorporate in your finished product. But um, the finished product, 90% of it has to go back to be sold outside of a country and another 10% has to stay in the country and sold to a local market. But I'm like, I know it's only 10%, but what if I don't have a market local because maybe my price point or whatever, what, what? Well, that's how it is. Okay, fine. Um, and then, and then I need to know me, the state, you need to share with us your formulations that I paid thousands of dollars for. And um, some of them, it's been months or even a couple of years of, you know, trying different things, whatever. But, you know, by the time you perfect something, it can take time sometimes. 
you're going to have to share that with them. And their rationale is, because we're exonerating you, so basically within a year, by the way, so when, the, when this stuff comes in, you have one year exactly for the finished product that has these ingredients in them to get out. 90% of it out to the outside market and 10% to the local market. You have to one year. If you pass one year, all the taxes you were supposed to pay on it, versus 25% and 70%, it's due. So you better get this thing out. So I have no control over even when I get to produce what, how do I do things? I got to rush. And then they say, you have to share everything with, you have to give us your recipes. And then you know what they say also? We, so that way we get to decide, even if your recipe is right, because, because their rational is, insofar as we're allowing you to bring this product in and we're not going to charge you a tariff, we want to make sure that you only bring what you need for your business and not end up selling it or it stays in the country and you didn't pay tariffs on it. Because you have to understand for most of these countries, the, the, their strategy for national budget is basically taxes on importations. Not, not on what we produce or anything, because they don't trust that. Of course, nobody's producing. What are we producing? So it's everything. The whole goal is tariff on importations. And it doesn't matter what it is for, whether it's for individuals or for businesses. It doesn't matter. That's their sole source. That's the only strategy for the national budget. Suck up as much as you can from importations. And so you can imagine why they're saying they don't want to miss out on one single cap of Le Bon. They don't want to miss out on one single pound of candelilla wax. That's why I have to share my recipe with them. And then there, somebody from the government is going to decide even if my recipe makes sense. And they may even change it because they may decide, well, we don't think that your recipe calls for 10% of candelilla wax. We think you say that so you can bring in more candelilla wax and maybe some. And the spoliage that you're talking about, because, you know, when you manufacture, you never get out as much as what you put in. A, you can have spillage. Two, you know, like um, the, the vessels, like the oil by the sides of the, of the, you know, the stainless steel tanks, there's always losses. So you account for that. And even that, they have to agree on it or not. But my first problem is, if you think I'm going to put my trade secrets in front of you, you're out of your mind. So that they can be sold, somebody copies me tomorrow, or whatever stuff. This is part of what makes us competitive. And we have to pay for this. So if you think I'm just going to put it on the public market like this, especially in places where I cannot always trust, if you're even going to have the professionalism, you know, to respect this type of, uh, of information, and to keep it confidential and, and private and secret, have to the no. And then when I say, but even if I wanted to do this, then what? Well, you have to talk to one of these, um, I guess, I don't even know what they are, chemists, I don't know what they are, but these agents from the state that would be actually the ones who get to approve my, um, my formulation. I'm like, where do I find them? Nicholas, I'm still waiting to hear from them. I'm still waiting to hear from the government who told me I need these people to send me to people that they have, um, you know, that they have uh, given the license to do this. I am still waiting. So do you know what I did? I, I, got, I got doing business anyway. And now, thank God, you know, we are uh, past the two years. And eventually, you know, you go to the customs and you get a special letter where he's like, okay, fine, whatever. You know, you did what you were supposed to do. But, you know, you have to jump through so many hoops. Meanwhile, in the U.S., in the U.S., because remember, I'm doing business in the U.S., 
in the US, I want to hire Nicholas. Okay, Nicholas, we agree on this salary. Yeah, oh my God, this is great. I love it. Let's do it. Sign, um, I, you, you, you and I signed the same document through DocuSign. We're done. You put it in your, in your, in your, in your, in your drawers. I put it in my drawers and we're, we're at work. Um, a year later, two months later, a week later, Nicholas and I, Nicholas or I decide that for whatever reason it's not working out and you're gone. You're done. We're done. I only owe you a two month, a two weeks severance and we're done. Have a, have a great life. Have a great life, my God. Have a great life, Nicholas. I wish you the best. Oh, and let's go have a drink next, next week. Done. And when it comes also to the, to the formulation, in the U.S., my first company, we were manufacturing in the U.S. Do you think I had to go to some, for the beverage company, do you think I had to go to some government office to go through all of this nonsense and all this crap? No. Some of the ingredients were found here in the U.S. Some others couldn't come from the U.S actually came from Senegal. And guess what? When these ingredients came from Senegal, do you know how much the U.S. government charged me? Zero percent turf, exactly. Okay? To make my beverage with this hibiscus. And, and I was done. I was not sharing my, my trade secrets with anybody. I only would share it with my co-packer, the people that are manufacturing for us. And they have some very specific um, rules and it is in their best interest to never be messing with their customers' recipes or you know, stealing them or doing that because this is an open market. If they do that, they have a bad reputation and eventually they have no more customers. People know who you can rely on, who is cheating, who is lying, who is cheating, who is stealing. So that was it. So it is like that about everything, Nicholas. It's like that about everything. The overreach of the state is just insane. Insane. And then the vacations that we have. It's like in my country we have uh, because uh, Senegal is a Sufi nation, so primarily Muslim. And what you have is um, also but super well integrated with Catholics and all of that. It's a super tolerant country. I'm so proud of my country for that, right? But what it means is that we have um, Muslim holidays, um, Christian holidays, all sorts of holidays, plus the day before because, and the day after because, you know, you got tired because, you know, um, the, the holiday, you know, people travel around and they party with their family. So they need a day to rest from the holiday. But I had to pay for that. Our, our um, what do you call it? Our national team, soccer team wins. And the president like, three days off. I declare three days off. And I'm going to have to pay for that. Everybody's not coming. I'm going to have to pay for that for his decision. It's, so I think people don't understand. So when I talk about, and then when I say, it's because it's overregulated, people just don't get it. And then when you start going into the details, they're like, my God, I had no idea. Because then, when, when, when you're complaining about regulations, they're thinking, oh my God, there goes a dirty capitalist who doesn't care about anything and she just wants everything to be less than fair, less than fair. And I'm like, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. And let's see if we can both agree that this is not right, that this makes no sense and this is nonsense. And I have yet to see somebody who's saying, this, this is crazy. This is not crazy. But this is a reality. And so the problem we have with this, uh, Nicholas, is you are in countries, so this is a problem where, remember when I told you about um, when I was looking at uh, the lack of uh, ease of doing business on both sides, and um, I could see the physical, uh, in Silicon Valley, I could see the physical ecosystem. I could see the lawyers, I could see the investors, I could see all of those people who form the ecosystem of the entrepreneur. But what I didn't see was the environment that supports all of that. And that's the problem with what you and I are working on. 
It's something rather invisible. Laws are invisible, yet they rule everything around us. Even our interactions among all of us, there are some rules behind it because there are some things that if we don't do it a certain way, you know, we are, we are liable for something. And so, but it's invisible. And I didn't see it until I started doing business. And even then, for it to be visible, you have to be somebody who is operating in the legal sector, in the formal sector. Most African nations and poor nations, most people have opted out of a formal sector because of how complicated. It's unworkable. Exactly. Because of how complicated everything is. But then they only know the tip of the iceberg in terms of how complicated it is. They can tell you the tax and everything, but they don't know all of these little laws that I know in my, in my blood cells everywhere because I'm dealing with it every day. The other day, on July, mid-July, my, my, uh, my CPA calls me and he says, my God, well, basically, remember that commute, um, that commute stipend raised by almost 30%. Over the, on July, on June 30th, they said, as of July 30th, this is the change. Union, it, it was a, a, a decision that the state made with the unions and supposedly the, the, the employers, um, you know, like, um, what do you call it? Network or whatever, but it's not like we have a lot of choice anyway. And that was it. So just like that overnight, you inflated all my costs. And there was also some other, also the, 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 the base, the base, um, salary also has gone up, had gone up. So overnight you raise all of my, um, uh, you know, personnel, uh, personnel expenses by not a little without me having an increase in productivity and or revenue. And this is all decisions of the state. I don't think people understand what you're talking about. And you so, don't understand it before you get the practical experience. You know, if you just look at all these like World Bank, OECD statistics, you don't get the picture, right? So, you know, oh, Senegal only has like 25% of its GDP, the public sector. France has 55. It can't be that. But then you're like, no, they're stopping everyone else from even reaching a higher level, right? Just the invisibility of it, right? So... You can't get big because they would come after you, right? So exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's the thing, and that's that's what makes everything we're talking about so hard. Because the rest of the world is at lunch; they have no idea. When I talk about we're overregulated, unless I they give me the time that you gave me to explain everything I just explained and more, they have no clue. Because in the world they live in, in the Western world especially. Um, when they hear overregulation, especially the people who supposedly care about Africa, and I will go ahead and call them, who traditionally are in the lab and come with a certain ideology, those guys, as soon as they hear over, as soon as they hear somebody complaining about overregulation, in their mind they're dealing with a dirty capitalist that just wants less affairs so they can abuse and exploit everybody. Until I bring up what I just brought up with you, and I said, we are. We are, we have, we, we, we have more regulations than any Scandinavian nation. And the reason why I take Scandinavia, because we know even anti-business Western people like to take Scandinavia as an example. And I tell them, do you know that those people, for you who hate capitalism so much, those countries are more capitalist than we could ever dream of being. And that's a big, and let me, and let me tell you why that's a problem. So the Western people don't get what I'm talking about. They don't, at least those who care about Africa, because, you know, the other side is like, whatever, many of them are thinking we're just, you know, stupid, 
uh, stupid, lazy people. But the others were like, you know, not saying that. You bring up overregulation, that's it. They think you're talking about laissez-faire and already you, you lost them. But let's take the time to hear more. Um, and then back home, we have been fed all these stupid, you know, reasons as to why we're poor. So nobody is questioning what's happening because when you live in a country where 97% of the businesses are in the informal sector, most of these businesses don't even know the, all the details as to what it would mean to be legal. So when I talk about these issues, they look at me like, girl, what are you smoking? Or like, or worse, why do you bother being legal? That's it. And the other, and the rest of the 3% who are operating in the legal sector, even them, I would like to argue, a lot of them, many of them are crony. And the other ones, and many of them also are actually jumping through the hoops, if you know what I mean. Giving the bribes here and there, whatever, then yeah. we are not respecting the rules. And so those people, and so a lot of the 3% are like bigger companies but usually benefit more or less, you know? And they're not the ones who are going to complain about what I complain about. If anything, actually, they would like to, to, for things to stay almost the same way because it gives them a competitive edge over me, the small one. And you see the problem why we're where we are. And then you yeah. try to bring up these issues and everybody's just like, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying every minute of this, right? On this podcast, I talk a lot about overregulation. But of like, you know, Western frontier industries like nuclear or whatever. And you're kind of showing what real overregulation is or means, mm -hmm. which is just staggering the injustice of it. Um, and, and my, my God, um, how, do you have time left? Because I definitely want to talk about solutions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's, um, yeah, we can definitely talk about solutions. I, uh, I may have maybe another half an hour. Does that work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we want yeah, to sorry, talk but, about but give you details. And I yeah. think those details are important, Nicholas. And thank you for asking. <laughs> very, very important. I think yeah, it's yeah. very important. People think they know, but they don't know until you tell them. And then they're like, wait, what? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about solutions, right? So yeah. um, we're both working on things like startup cities, charter cities. Um, but give me your whole range of solution space and then let's maybe dive yeah. a bit deeper how we yeah. um, can address specifically the legal challenges you've been talking about. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the solutions, I put them into two buckets. One is awareness building and the other one is action taking, right? Awareness to me is so critical because you're dealing with an issue that 99.9% of the population has wrong when it comes to the diagnosis. Like I told you, remember this? Usual suspects that you hear uh, when you ask people why we're poor and everybody comes up with their own answers, but yet you, you don't hear anybody bringing up a right, the right problem. That is, in itself is, is a problem. Because if you don't have a right diagnosis to a problem, how do you expect to get the right solution? You might be lucky, but in here, luck is, luck is not going to help us. So I think setting that record straight is critical. And that's really the reason why I, 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 I uh, wrote this book and also explained to people how we got there. So... First things first, awareness building. The diagnosis has to get out. Why we're poor has to be known, okay? That's why I call it um, the lies we've been told about Africa, about poverty in Africa, and what it means for human flourishing. So the, this is where we're going to. So, my, uh, so awareness building, one bucket. The other bucket is action taking. There, I have a whole suite of um, solutions for people to get engaged in from the least 
engaged one to the most engaged one. Because, you know, people have lives. They have things to do. They want to support you. But, you know, this is not the, their, the hill, their cross to bear. I get it. So um, there we have something called the Cheetah Maid. Cheetah Maid is basically this, um, this label that we're creating, like you have organic or fair trade or whatever, where basically Cheetah Maid means African products made in Africa by Africans. When you're buying products with such a label, you do know that you're contributing to the solution, which is a job. A good job exists somewhere in Africa, which is supporting a person, a, a family, and people are taking care of their own needs because now they have an income to support themselves, just like it works everywhere else. In the US, in Germany, everywhere, people have a job which first provides them with an income. And with that income, they can take care of their needs and the needs of their families and everybody's happy, right? So when you buy Cheetah Made, that's what you get. And so that's been launched um, um, towards uh, the end of the, of the month, you know, for people to just be able to participate in the solutions without having to, you know, spend time or fight to figure out what's legit, what's not. And then, um, then we move on to things like um, various, you know, like e-governance of, of sorts. Um, there, what it is, is if you can't get the whole thing, is even maybe at the municipal level, um, work maybe with uh, mayors to, at the very minimum, find out where the taxes are going in and what they're being spent on. Technology can help you. All of this e-government stuff can help with transparency. It doesn't help with necessarily putting better laws or better regulations or, or better yet, removing many of them. But at least, you know, transparency uh, can be helpful to everyday citizens on a regular basis. So, but, um, and I share a lot of, and I share a few more solutions in the book, but really the one I want to talk to you about for the, for the sake of our audience, and people can find the rest in the book, but um, for the time that's left to us, I really want to focus on the startup cities. So what happened and, um, and why did I become interested in the startup cities? Because once I understood that the business environment was a problem, of course, I'm like, how do we solve this? And eventually, that's what got me into the work that I do um, with Atlas Network, where I am the director for the you know, African Center for Prosperity working on all of this stuff, you know, all of our, um, the think tanks that we invest in in Africa, the free market think tanks, they're all working on solutions to taking down barriers of entry for entrepreneurs in their respective nations. So they come up with their own problems and they come up with their own solutions and we're just here to power them, right? And so this uh, reforms work is very important, but I am, I am very worried because there is a great sense of urgency when you have hundreds of millions of young people coming to in the age of uh, where we should be working and building for their lives and, um, you know, and, but not having that, that, those jobs, this is the ticking bomb, right? There's nothing they say that's more dangerous than a young person, especially a young man with uh, no hope for the future. It causes, they cause all types of chaos, right? And so I am, I very much have this sense of urgency. And right now in Senegal, when I was growing up, uh, when I told you about the boats leaving, it was every month for every few weeks you would hear something. But today, you hear something every day. And multiple times a day, you hear about a boat that's stuck somewhere, dead, dead infants found in it. Multiple times a day, did you hear about a different story of, of, of different boats? Something is accelerating. It is accelerating. I don't know if it's a lack of hope for young people. I don't know if it's because thanks to social media, they get to see other people living great lives and their, 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 their impatience is growing faster. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you whatever it is, it's accelerating. 
and the deaths are accelerating. Okay. And this is just us, but across the continent, I know it is the same. The same is happening. The Nigerians, almost all of them want to leave Nigeria. So we got to do something faster. We got to be more radical. And so I will continue my work on the piecemeal, on the legislate, on the reform work, but that takes time. It's all over the place. By the time you cleaned up one regulation over here, maybe five more have popped up over there. And it's just like, you know, this cycle. So while we continue that work and some of our partners are doing amazing work, especially Imani in Ghana, we have, um, the great Lake City down in, um, in uh, Burundi. Those guys are doing amazing work with South Sudan. People are also doing great work. So, and we support them all the way, but. This is where I started becoming a patient. I'm like, we got to start with this lean slate. You know, at some point, the house or the building, everything is so rotten that the time and resource that it takes to renovate this thing is just going to be humongous. And even then, you don't get to really do what you need to do. So I really, um, that need um, just became clear to me. And of course, you know, I am married to a gentleman, Michael Strong, who I believe is just one of the best. Um, he has been working on this uh, concept of startup cities where the best, the best way to think about them, I mean, I'm not going to say what it is because your audience knows it. So I'm not going to, I'm going to gain time there. So your audience, they all know what the startup cities are. But the reason why for me, the startup cities are the most radical and most promising uh, solution for Africa is because of um, what the Prospera folks have built. You know, Eric Berman and his team, this amazing platform that just basically allows, um, allows any nation to offer on a designated area, allows them to have world-class business, a world-class business environment, just like that. You twist, you turn the tap and it's right there and we can start building right now. I was like, wait, what? So. That to me has been just like, that's the promise and the hope that keeps me alive, literally. And so um, Startup Cities really for me is the way, is the way. Um, and I like to always um, emphasize that um, I feel I, Startup Cities though should get the, the, the letters of nobility that they deserve because they are so misunderstood out there. And that's something that you and I, um, Nicholas, were talking about earlier. Um, so many people have no understanding or no appreciation of why these startup cities would be so crucial, but I hope that after they listen to us, they could understand because this is the only way we're going to correct the situation. Because what people don't understand is if we were trying to do this at an, at a country level, it's a non-starter. You have all of these entrenched interest. It's just a nightmare. If Senegal was trying to do what we're trying to talk about at the national level, but you know, the only way they would understand it, the notary would be fighting us. Everybody's going to fight you. Everyone. The, the, the current um, cronies, everybody's going to be in your way. So even if the president wanted to do something, he couldn't do it. And um, so here, and also I was, um, the other thing also has to do with um, the fact that um, Africa is the youngest uh, population in the world, average age of 19 years old. And by 2050, one out of every four people in the world will be African. I do believe that there is a strong play for us to, to, do, to, to play in terms of leapfrogging. You see, you have a school of thought out there of what I call the, develop, uh, industri the, um, the industrial, you know, planners. I know there's another word for it, but you know, this whole school of economic development, that's about industrial planning, meaning like 
at a, nation, at a national level, you're going to decide which industries you want to go for. And most of these people, they believe that uh, manufacturing has to be a big part of it, which I do believe as well. But where our belief stops is me, I believe manufacturing is going to be a big part of it, you know, transforming some of your raw input. Um, but for them, it's the only way it can go. First, you go into manufacturing and then you go into the knowledge industry. And I'm saying, we can leapfrog that, you know, we're going to do manufacturing, but we can and should also leapfrog on the, um, on the um, what do you call it, on the, the, the knowledge and services, you know, industries. And as a matter of fact, it is known that um, at a country level, it would be hard to see a country level that has, you know, managed to do something like that, which is a reason why I was having an argument with um, someone recently, actually Michael Schellenberger. We shared a, we shared a cab for an hour and we're talking about all of this stuff. So he's more on the camp of that. And uh, for him, that's, we're talking about the startup cities and, you know, and he, and I was seeing his pushback, but I do think we, I do think we made, we made progress with him through, through the conversation. We had like, what, an hour and a half um, cab ride with him. So I think he conceded some really good points towards, towards the end of the conversation. But when we started, he was very dubious about all of this. Um, and I, and we still have more work to do. But the thing is, um, you know, it is known, though, I, I can hear the criticism because he will like, show me one country that has, that has been able to do that. And I'm like, maybe not a country, but actually nation states are notorious for this. You know, Hong Kong, Singapore, they're notorious for that. And in my mind, this goes to support the startup cities. We're not trying to do things at a national level. We're trying to do it at a city-sized level, right? And when it comes to that, I think the evidence is on our side that that leapfrog is possible. Because if we think um, in the long run, we're going to be able to, because I'm like, Michael, I mean, our young people are right there. And um, if you have a 15-year-old today or 17-year-old even, and you have a really good way of getting them to the other side, you know, in terms of learning how to code, in terms of learning, I mean, this stuff, you don't, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. It doesn't need forever to learn this stuff. Within six months for some great programs, maybe you know, two years from some other programs, somebody can be ready to actually have a digital job. So I argue this is possible. And uh, some of these cities, that's what they're going to focus on. And you, Nicholas, you have a friend who you told me about, but I would like to talk to about this, actually. Sorry. You, you have a friend who is doing, you know, who is hiring a bunch of people in the digital realm in Africa. And I think this is also another misunderstood point because you have a traditional development, you know, uh, people who the ones who are like more industrial development, that's what they're thinking about. And they don't see a world in which we can make that leap, that leap, that leapfrog it. And so in my case, I'm just saying we have, we, 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 the manufacturing, okay. I think it's important to manufacture. I really do. But I also think that all of these African nations, if they embrace the startup cities, we're going to start to be able to show the world a whole different picture. Um, and, and that's the other promise of a startup cities. And even there again, um, it, it's the, the evidence is there. Nation states have been able to leapfrog, you know, on some of this stuff. So I don't know. I, I, for me, that's the solution, um, um, Nicholas, and, um, we're working on, you know, finding places in Africa that are willing to do this. And, uh, right now we have, um, you know, a couple of very promising places. And uh, I'm very excited about where this is going. Very excited. I just came back from the ARC conference in, um, in uh, what do you call it, in uh, London, Jordan Peterson's, uh, you know, brain, brainchild. 
And I actually have now two more countries that approach me, but I was not talking to when I went to this, but they heard it and they're like, this is interesting. And so I'm going to follow up on those. One of them is a, a nation that I think actually could be very, it would work very well for them because of their circumstances. And another one is somebody who belongs to, the, it's, a, it's a kingdom somewhere in West Africa where actually the king and their tribe still has customary, you know, sovereignty in a way. So we're going to have to explore all of this. But uh, it looks like at least when it comes to how they look at it, this, this person who came to me uh, is part of a kinship. He's part of, um, he's part of a king's, king's family. And um, he said basically that they're all on the same page in terms of we're going to need to, we, we're looking for economic development and we know we're going to have to do something very different. We believe in entrepreneurship, blah, 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 blah. And we do have some sovereignty from the rest of the state. So can we figure out if, um, if there is enough of that for the platform you're talking about? But my, the good news is when we first started talking about, you know, some of his staff, many, you know, many African nations, you know, they look at you like that. These people, they're not, they're not working for you, they're responding to us. They're responding to the people who give them foreign aid because that's who their bosses are. But their bosses are not me, their citizen. But, and so they treat you like crap. They don't listen. But right now what I'm seeing is things are looking very different, looking very different. And I think, Nicholas, you could probably... Um, you know, um, confirm that, but uh, you're seeing definitely that people are speaking the right, the right verbiage. They're speaking the right language. Now, does it mean that they understand exactly what this is going to entail and what we're going to need from them and be ready to provide it? Not always, but these are very, this, it's, we, we have interesting times ahead of us. And I do believe, because this is the reason why I'm so bullish on Africa and the startup cities. All we need, I keep repeating it, it's one nation to try it. All we need is one success somewhere. And then the seed change is going to happen because people copy, people replicate. And so for me, that's the, our only job is to get one place going and try to prove the point. And from there, we can rest because from there, the stuff just, it's, it's a snowball and it's going to take care of itself. So um, that's why my biggest solution is the startup cities. Meanwhile, I am building this uh, cheetah made so that we can support the current entrepreneurs on the ground, you know, um, and give them a market for their products and uh, which then goes to support great jobs. That's it. That's like, yeah, um, we've been having um, conversations about startup cities and we're partly also involved in or in many of the same conversations The startup cities in Africa with Prospera. We have the first success case in Central yeah. America and Latin America. Uh -huh. And there's a lot that we're um, bouncing off of each other. Uh, and I was never like, it, it's just amazing how far we've come and how much potential there is there. Right. So, yes. um, and, and it's, it's really amazing to cross paths with you on that work. Um, for anyone who's new to that movement, like startup cities, and especially as it relates to Africa, um, like, especially if they're like truly care or have the ability and they're entrepreneurs and can help and apply their skills, what would you say are um, practical ways to help you on your mission to promote African entrepreneurship and startup cities? Thank you. So right now, basically, my call is to all the cheetahs, the cheetahs, and by the way, cheetahs is because of uh, Professor George Aite. He was the Ghanaian economist that we lost earlier this year. But George really is the one who put his finger as to why Africa is poor and the, his argument is because we're socialists and he's very right. 
And because what happened is we drank the socialist Kool-Aid right around the time many of us were going to become uh, so-called free. Toward the end of colonialism, uh, the liberators of Africa, the, Af the Africa freedom fighters, the independent fighters of our times, all had drunken the Marxist socialist Kool-Aid of the time because it was a time at which those ideologies. So on one end represented, on one end you had the Western ideology uh, promoting freedom and using capitalism as its um, economic system, facing off with uh, the Eton bloc, defending various forms of statism, right? And our, our freedom fighters saying, and those two, those two ideologies were looking for influence, looking south. And those two, um, uh, us, we said, well, look, the West is who colonized us and uh, has been involved in the slave in the slave trade in the slave trade as well. Then whatever it is that they're supporting, we definitely are not going to support that. And that's when we did basically the the enemy of my um, of my enemy is my friend, and we we basically went to bed with um, some of the worst ideology we could have gone to bed with. We threw the baby out of the bathwater, um, you know, when we when we welcomed the, the Marxist ideology, uh, rejected um, capitalism because that's what they rejected as well. And also, you know, because they looked like they were the people who, because it's true, back in the days, the Marxists are the ones who supposedly were, you know, um, fight, fighting racism, right? And it's very true. Very many Marxists were fighting racism. Although Marx himself was a known racist, but that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, we, 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 we said, you guys are, we, are, we have the same fight. We have the same fight. And that's when we threw a baby out of the bathwater, which was capitalism in this case, not understanding, as George explains, and I bring that up in the book as well, that the Africans before slavery time we're practicing the free markets and they're free and, uh, and we're all for free enterprise. So when we joined the Marxist socialists, we left behind our true heritage of free markets. And so I argue that Marxist socialism is an imported crap. It is the real colonialism of the mind. And so um, that's what happened. So George is the one who showed we're poor today because we espoused uh, socialist ideology 60 some plus years ago that we never let go of, we never reconsider. So, um, the, so if people want to join us, um, and so George, for Cheetahs is where I was going. George, in his famous TED talk, which was called Cheetahs versus Hippos, he said the hippos were the bureaucrats of today, all of these African people who are dealing with the IMF and who knows what else, that's what their path to so-called maybe development is. You know, like that good old development, development, all of that, poverty alleviation, all of that is basically the hippos, hippo lifestyle, hippo world, hippo beliefs. But he said, the, he said, Africa, the, the future of Africa lies on the back of the cheetahs. And he said, the cheetahs, it's us, the fast runners of the continent. We are the ones uh, who say that we're not going to wait for anyone to get things done. We believe in ourselves. Uh, we know what it takes, you know, to do business, uh, to, to build prosperity. We know that the free markets are the way. We know that free enterprise is a way. And we also know that we're going to have to reconsider all of our governance systems. We're going to have to, we're going to have to redo everything pretty much like undo and redo. That's what the startup city is all, all about. In this case, it's like, let's go in a piece, in a place and do it right this time. And uh, yeah, so that's what the cheetahs are. It's a mindset. It's not about being African, non-African. It's not about living on the continent, not living on the continent. It's about having this mindset. Do you believe that we can be more than what we are today? 
And do you believe that it's going to be done through the free markets and the free enterprise? And if you do, then you're part of a cheetah generation. That's it. So I'm out there calling for the cheetahs. So you, you identify as such, then reach out. I have a little application on my website where just uh, send us an email. We're going to, ha we have a little application process because I want people to take this seriously. This is not just like, oh, we think it's so great. Let us come. That's fine. There's a, there's a rule. There's a, there's a place for folks like that who are just like, I'm an enthusiastic supporter. But for people who are going to say, I want to roll up my sleeves. I'm this, you know, young entrepreneur, or whatever I am. And I want to roll up my sleeve and I want to be part of this thing then fill out this little application we have because we want to know that you're going to be worth this list because we have a lot of work to do and there is no room for the naysayers and there's no room for those who want to come and discuss again. Are you sure socialism is that the way? Are you sure it was, it was just not done right the first time? And, you know, complain all, but no, 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 no. This is like, you ready, you got it, come. And so you do the application, we bring you in and what we're going to start doing is uh, we're going to have uh, weekly meetings, you know, via Zoom, um, so, webinars that I'm going to be leading where we're going to talk on all the things that are going on in Startup City World. So Nicholas will probably have you on as well, just to kind of share with us some of the things that's going on, whether it's like new entrepreneurs you're seeing coming into the field, um, talk to people about what is it that they're doing that they need help with, or what is it that they can provide help with. So just have these very dynamic conversations, uh, find out, you know, you know, just kind of share the states of things. People have a company that they want to move back to Africa. Um, all of that stuff. So we really want an active place of doers and thinkers, but uh, people who are looking forward um, because some arguments in my mind were done. Some arguments were done. And this is where too many Africans still are. And that's why I have this application. I don't want to be dragged or trapped into, um, you know, all the nonsense. We want to build. So, so yeah, so that's where people can meet us. Uh, go to magatwade.com and also follow me on social media at magatw. And we want as many people involved in the conversation. But again, the rules of engagement is simply to criticize by creating. We don't want complaints. We know things are terrible and we know they could get better. And we know there's no reason why they should be the way they are one more day. We get it. But let's get to work. And most importantly, let's have fun while doing it. And to me, that's really what we're all about. So uh, let us have fun, you know, building the world we want to see. Oh my God, I'm at a lack for words, uh, appreciating the gratitude um, of having you on the show, learning from you, be involved with your work um, and just learn from your tremendous experience and just charting a path to a better future for, for Africa and the rest of the world um, by unleashing the power of entrepreneurship. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, I look forward to crossing paths with you again. Same here, Nicholas. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for all the great work you've been doing. You're someone who is really um, putting your, you know, your food where your mouth is. You moved into one of these cities and uh, you're promoting it day in and day out. And um, every, all the work you've been doing and continue to do, it all adds up. So, um, so I am the one who is also saying thank you, Nicholas. And um, much gratitude for you as well. Thank you, my God. Appreciate it. <laughs>